0: to say a few words tonight about uh, bringing our life into focus hoping that that image of focus will be helpful it implies that we <coughs> That it is possible to live our life being out of focus. Before we begin, or as part of it, there is no separation. We've all worked very hard today. Me too, and probably we're a little tired. Some of you are here for the first time. Some of you are having a difficult time of it, running into many of the mind states that were mentioned. And then there's a period for our talk and it's all too natural to slip into a very passive mode. The passive in the sense, not so much in the sense of receptive, that would be good. But uh, dropping a real interest in the quality of our attention temporarily and just wanting to be filled up with something or entertained or soothed. And that is part of what Dharma talks may do from time to time. But what I would like to suggest is you dip into your reserve gas tank. And it's not to strain, but to bring listening to your listening. Or to listen to how you listen. And then the continuity of the meditation practice is not damaged. So there are some words that are coming out at you, you're listening. And the interesting thing about awareness is that it can see how the listening is happening. For example, if your body is in an awkward posture right now and extremely uncomfortable, but you're not fully attending to it, it may be draining energy away from your capacity to listen. And you may not know that. So awareness, which enables us to listen, is comprehensive and total. We have to—it's the whole being that listens, the whole person, the mind and the body. And so in order to learn how to listen we have to begin to see how we're not listening. And it's simply an application of the practice of noticing perhaps certain things are said and there's agreement with it and then the mind spins off in some uh, pleasant association or there's disagreement and there's a... uh, an internal dialogue with yourself, your own personal dharma talk. What you really would say if you were up here, and it would be much better than what I'm saying. And in the meantime, five minutes have gone by, and it's not. Maybe it's true, but it, what's happening is you've lost touch. Whereas we can make this, we can meet each other on a certain level of intensity, and in that way, the mode of meditation is continued or we can fall back into, uh, this would be like a drive-in theater, you know, just, the only thing missing are the cars, and just relax and get filled up with some Dharma words. Get a malted shake, and then drive off two hours later. It wasn't such a good movie, it was a very good movie. And so for meditation to become really a way of life, every situation that we find ourselves in is a challenge, an occasion to develop this capacity to stay awake, to remain sensitive, and to learn from the the seeing and the hearing. In terms of bringing our life into focus, we just start, say, Friday evening when everyone turned up. Each one of us turns up at this place being a certain kind of person. It isn't that it's a fixed thing, it's more of a process, but there are tendencies and patterns, and it's on all levels as people file in. there's some of us who have meditation pants which have elastic on it, and others like drawstring style. And some only wear plastic-type winter gear, and others have L.L. Bean-type leather. And the, the, the taste and color and kinds of clothes and parkers and all, it's just staggering. Not to mention the different ages and sizes of the body and preferences in terms of food experience with this practice and other practices. Love of silence, uneasiness with silence. There's each one, a world walks in each one of us is a world, and it walks in. And if we enter right at this moment, or any moment, we find ourselves being a certain kind of person. And maybe we didn't ask to be this kind of person with such and such tendencies, but here we are. In a subtle way, perhaps we did make ourselves be who we are. If you enter into the notion of karma and What we've done in the past is what we are now. At any rate, the practice of Vipassana is to begin right there. And one of the hardest things, and those of you who are here for the first time, based on the conversations I've been having with you, are finding this out, that it's very difficult to just allow that set of qualities and capacities and properties that walked in and is beginning to do this practice, to be just that and to be aware of it, to see what that is, to bring ourselves into focus. So we come here being a certain kind of person, having certain tendencies, and the instructions are really giving you encouragement and license to be just what you are, in each moment to find out what that is from moment to moment. We're not expecting you to be anything in particular. Maybe no one is here except you. And so it becomes more difficult. If it's difficult, it's more difficult because there are all kinds of notions about what meditation is, what vipassana is, what you should be doing. My, many people have told me my concentration is just awful. But where does awful come from? There's some standard at work. Or is if we make awful, we have awful. We're the kind of person with awful concentration. Which then connects with all the other awful things that we've done. And before you know it, you're sitting in a very difficult mind state or set of mind states wondering how to get out of it and get to some place that's wonderful. It's promised by meditation texts and teachers, and maybe you've tasted it yourself on different retreats or different sittings. And we continuously in this practice just begin with what we have, begin with what we are from moment to moment. We find ourselves exhibiting a certain kind of behavior. It's out of our control, certain thoughts like secretions, almost like glandular secretions. They, we don't want to have these thoughts, but there they are. They're secreted there by the brain. Where did this come from? Well, it came out of, your, out of your brain or mind, depending on how you look at it. And then the body acts up. You thought you were in really good shape, but you just can't sit. Well, I was good in tennis, racquetball, and all those other things. Why can't I just sit? I don't know, but you can't. And there are reasons for it, having to do with, you know, we've gone over some of it. Some of it is just the newness. The point is, the practice is encouraging you to meet yourself as you are with care and sensitivity. In a way, what we're learning, because it's so difficult for us, is how to get to where we already are, which sounds idiotic, I mean, if I'm already there, why do I have to get there? The only reason it isn't idiotic is because we're trying so hard to get somewhere else. Somehow, wherever we are, is, very often at least, is not the right place to be. And then the mind, these secretions come out, and one is an imagined other kind of being that we might be, if only, or another place we might be, or other food that might be there or a different body, a much more supple, flexible one that sits for hours on end with no pain, no discomfort. And we want to leapfrog over that and get to the comfortable body and get to the comfortable mind, one that's serene and at peace. And really, you hear the words that are being said now and you've heard them before because I've been saying things like this in different ways. (laughs) During our time together. And you would very much like to just let it all be exactly what it is. You, as one person put it, uh, I don't even hit the cushion and already I just am discouraged and I, uh, you know, my buttock has not even touched the cushion yet and I don't feel that I want to look at one more breath. Just can't stand the thought of looking at another breath. Now, the practice is very gentle, but also, perhaps you've noticed, quite ruthless. In that there's no escape, because, say, fine, you hate meditation, you hate me, you hate IMS. Look at it. It's all right, that's the meditation. But wait a minute, I hate meditation. Yeah, yeah, I know. That's great. I mean, can you see that? Can you explore it and find out what that's about? Receive it. Where is it? Where is the hate? In your body or... Now, that kind of a message is a little bit frustrating because we've had a lifetime of going from A to B to C to D. You know, the school system, so much is set up that way. And there's, there's, there's a place for that, for sequential development. But we're learning how to get from A to A. That's the high art here. At least it seems so, based on a lot of the questions for all of us. And so, can we learn to soften to real resistance to following even one more breath to be with that mind? We don't want to have that kind of mind. We would like to have a serene mind. But the fact is, we don't. At that moment, we don't. And that's what we're learning to do. We're learning to live in the facts of how things actually are for us rather than fanciful realities that the mind secretes. I don't know why I love that one tonight. (laughs) 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 What was that famous newscaster's mind used to say, this is March, whatever, and that's the way it is? Um, Yes. Of course, that was the way it is for him and his staff. But uh, in a sense, that was you know, that was a characterization of the news of the day put together by them, and in a certain sense, subjectively, that's the way it is. And we're doing that. We're trying to, to see that, to become a bit lucid about that, to see all of our likes and dislikes and resistances and tendencies to go into self-pity for one person having difficulty or let's say having a certain number of, I don't want to feed this, having a certain number of breaths go by without any attention uh, gets interpreted as I have terrible concentration and then that person hardens up and becomes very grim and joyless and attacks the breath. I'll follow that breath. And that's perhaps that person's characteristic way of dealing with adversity or any challenge. And then another person goes into self-pity. And perhaps that's their characteristic way. And so we have no choice but to be exactly how we find ourselves in these moments. And it's not a message of passivity, but one actually of sensitivity, of grasping the profound implications of such a simple statement that each one of us has to live out our own life exactly the way we find it. And something wonderful happens if we can begin to do that because it actually becomes easier to live. And perhaps even some of the ideals that we project for ourselves become actualized as we stop brutalizing ourselves for not being where we think we should be. Okay, bringing our life into focus, I I hope this image is helpful. I'm using it because I spoke to someone today who is a professional photographer and they kept using photographic metaphors and so I think I caught it and it sounded like it might be able to help us see some things. I'm doing it again. How do we bring our life into focus? And I would say that a lot of what we're attempting to do in Vipassana practice is that. In order to help us in a more minute and palpable way, and one that's very tightly linked to the actual practice that we're doing, not really an abstract explanation, I hope, I'd like to bring in three aspects of certain facets of the Noble Eightfold Path of the Buddha. and I'm just going to be taking selected aspects of them, right effort, right concentration, right mindfulness, but treat them together as a family of very closely related factors. And I would say they're tremendously important in helping us to bring our life into focus. Now by saying, by attempting to bring our life into focus, it is being suggested that it is possible that we are out of focus. And perhaps this constant refinement of seeing, in a general sense of seeing, is something that we're engaged in. An endless kind of refinement, fine-tuning, so that what we think is a clear picture At one point, turns out to be not so clear from another point. It's something like this. I just took my glasses off. And as I look out at you, what I see are, you have to take my word for this, are blotches of color and shape. And I can barely make out features of some people. And I know a number of you, and I can, it's more memory. Can't really see your detail, the details of your face, but I know you're there, and that helps me a little bit. But I'm not seeing. There's not much focus, really, although I'm seeing some forms. And supposing that's all that I knew, and then somebody said, uh, "Why don't you get yourself a pair of glasses, for God's sakes? You're bumping into walls and knocking things over." Okay, and you put them on, and now it's only a totally different room. You're the same. Nothing's happened. You've been here all the time. And all I did was put on these things and you're much more in focus and I can really see all kinds of interesting distinctions and detail. My world has changed. And that's what happens in our practice as we refine our capacity to attend to things. And in right effort, the first aspect of it, which has to do with the ability to turn towards what's happening now. I mean, is there a willingness to do that? Make it very specific. Every time our mind falls out of the moment, if it was the breath in the earlier stages of the instructions, or now with the breath as a primary object, or even in action, it's really the same principle. We're off somewhere. We remember and we it takes effort to turn to direct our attention to the object. Whether the object is chopping vegetables or the breath. That takes a bit of effort. And as we've gone over a number of times, that effort has to be balanced. If it's forced or if it's too slack, it won't be too helpful and what balances changes from moment to moment, as we change, as the amount of energy that we have available changes, and a whole host of other factors. So just that simple operation, just that ability to decide and be willing to turn towards what's happening right now. We're away from the breath, oh, I'm not with the breath, and to turn towards that, to direct attention to the breath. That moment that we did that, in and of itself may seem small and trivial, but it isn't because it's the beginning of the re-education of the mind. Whereas every time we make an effort like that to turn towards what's happened, to opening to the present object, to what's going on right now, that capacity in us is strengthened. It's nourished, it's strengthened, and the likelihood of its recurrence is increased, and every time we don't do that, every time we uh, drift in inattention, or in a sense blown by, blown around by the wind like a fall leaf. Just what I mean is not alert, not with what's happening right to a, right with us in the moment. Then that quality of mind is strengthened, and so a lot of what is being set up here and perhaps books that you're reading and a whole host of conditions are attempts to inspire, to encourage for you more and more to remember to make those moves. Come back, come back to the present moment, come back to the present object that you've perhaps set for yourself or that life has set for you. If you're chopping vegetables during your, the work period, it's the same principle, it's not limited to the hall. You're chopping vegetables. In the meantime, you're uh, devising some great poem or planning what you're going to do when the retreat is over. And we've become so skilled in terms of doing things on automatic pilot that the vegetables get chopped and you don't get hurt. And we all get fed with nice, well-cut vegetables. But if you remember the instructions carried into that kind of a situation would be remembering to turn to the vegetables or is the object of attention is you chopping the vegetables, you sweeping the dining room, whatever it is. You walking, you getting dressed, you getting undressed. That moment of coming from, well, let's just call it inattentiveness to attentiveness is a very important step in our re-education because it accumulates and a momentum develops where more and more that becomes how we live. We keep falling out of the moment, we keep coming back, and from this point of view, I don't know if it's forever, but it certainly seems like it's for a long time, we're all beginners. We're all beginning each moment. We fall out of the moment, we start again. We fall out of the moment, we start again. Perhaps the only difference between myself and some of you who are very new to the path is that I don't get annoyed or chide myself or sulk when I've been inattentive. I just start all over again. Whereas perhaps you, uh, based on some of the things that the questions and some of the comments, are disappointed in yourself or you've made an achievement that's, that's making it difficult for you perhaps making it grim. Okay, what can help us do that? So many things. Some of it, and different people are helped. Inspired to turn towards the present moment by different things. Perhaps the most direct is when you begin to see the difference that that makes. So that you're not dependent on any authority, authoritative statement or book or friend, but you begin to see that if you opt to come into the present moment and be with whatever is there, including those mind and body states that we're not so happy with, that it's not a waste of time. That, in fact, the quality of your life begins to change. In other words, the the value of it becomes intrinsic. The process of meditation uh, becomes self-motivating because we start to see, we dig it out of our own life. It's not second-hand knowledge. It's something that we trust because we can see for ourselves that this activity is a worthwhile activity to do. And from time to time, a contemplation of that sort is useful to just reflect, oh, I see what happened. Wasn't that interesting when I decided to look at fear and to be with it? It changed and it wasn't so frightening. There was even a patch of stillness and that felt good. Mm, to reflect on that. And then the another kind of reflection is, of course, the opposite. On inattentiveness the cost of inattentiveness, of winding up in situations that uh, are not fruitful, of causing problems in relationships, of causing problems with our body because we haven't paid attention and have done things that are not skillful, not intelligent, not appropriate. In my own case, that's what's helped the most, or is the practice itself. Has fed energy back into the system to want to give more effort to staying awake, but other things have helped, and um, I personally like reading biographies, dharma biographies, and I've read, you know, many lives of some of the ancient yogis, Milarepa, and many others. The Buddha, of course. And that has served always to be very inspiring for me to to create energy. But, you know, everything is collaborating and helping us to have this kind of energy and effort to be able to, to do what we want to do, and in this case to turn towards the present moment. It could be just having a good meal. That lunch was delicious. And that perked you up and you were more willing to stay awake during the afternoon. As I mentioned, retreats travel on their stomach, too. It's not just the army. Then again, it could go the other way. We get lost in the good tastes and all the rest of it and overeat. And it's siesta time for the the whole afternoon. Okay, so, granted now that the mind has turned towards the object, let's say it's the breath, whether you've selected it at the nose or at the abdomen, Then we have the issue of the continuity of the stability of attention. Granted, we've turned towards the breathing. Do we have the capacity to stay there? Can the mind remain concentrated, fixed? Or is it forever uh, going away from the object, landing and leaving? or as big gaps in our capacity to, to stay with something. That kind of a, this concentrated energy, a stability of mind, extremely important in life. I don't think anything worthwhile can happen without that capacity to sustain one's attention. And we call it concentration, let's say. Now, what we were doing for the first period of the instructions, we were on the breath as an exclusive object, and just coming back to the breath, wandering, coming back, wandering, coming back, that was more training in that, pretty much exclusively, what we sometimes call shamatha training here. And that exists in all traditions, in all yogic disciplines, probably in all things that are worthwhile. Some attempt to help the mind sustain itself and be concentrated. But in and of itself, it doesn't necessarily lead to wisdom yet, and freedom. Yet without it, notions of wisdom and freedom are fanciful. So it's an extraordinarily important component in our re-education, in our development. This capacity to stay with something. Okay, So then let's say that pretty much has been emphasized and now we've opened the field so that the breath is the primary object. But if we find that we're taken to something else, then that something else becomes the object of meditation. And we come back to the breath. And let's introduce mindfulness now and let's call that the uh, capacity for discernment. Granted now we've turned towards the object. We've made the effort to land on the breath, to place attention on the breath. And there's the capacity to stay there with the breath. And I haven't been emphasizing too much, especially for the new people, the, the aspect of the detailed discernment, the refinement of noticing. Because it's possible to, be, possible to be highly concentrated, but not too sensitive as to what's going on. And the wisdom Comes from seeing what's going on, seeing the way things are, not just by concentration. They're inseparable when they're working. You can't, they're just, I have to distinguish them in terms of language, but they also can be separated. It, and many people are very concentrated but not too sensitive. I'm speaking now just in common sense, relatively. Relatively concentrated but not too sensitive. And there are other minds that are rather sensitive but don't have that stability pick up things, but then are very easily blown off course. And what we're attempting to do is to help develop a mind that's both stable and sensitive, that has the capacity to repeatedly turn to the present moment, to stay there, and to be able to see the subtlety of what's happening in that present moment, including moving into realms where, to complete the analogy, it would no longer be that I have eyeglasses but I now have a microscope and perhaps even an electronic microscope so that the noticing becomes something that is not accessible to the average person who has not undergone this or some comparable kind of training. There are certain aspects of the nature of mind and body that simply can't be seen, can't be brought into focus or the level at which we have focus misses. And so this meditation is this endless refinement and examining the same phenomena, the same old mind and body, just like I took my glasses off and I put them back on. You're the same. It's me who changed. The practice then becomes increasingly having a mind that's fit for self-examination of an increasingly refined nature. Dealing with units of attention that are probably not possible unless one has undergone some kind of of intentional training. Something like what we're doing. Now, practically, that means for, for the rest of the retreat, let's say when you're, uh, you're with the abdomen, if I can now make this a little bit more concrete, particularly for those of you who are very new to the practice. Step number one, you had to get to the abdomen or the nose. And I know that at the beginning, uh, it may, the problem may be not simply following the breath, but can you even find the nostrils? And the answer might be no. I can't. Where are they? My my attention is so weak, or I have so little ability to make an effort to come to it. But now we land on it. We place our attention on the object, breathing in one form or another, and then we're learning how to stabilize our attention, perhaps staying slightly longer than we were able to last night. And it's not that it grows necessarily in a nice, neat, linear package, but over a period of time, if you practice it with sincerity, with some kind of continuity, it gets stronger. And if you don't, it doesn't. It's not mysterious. It's like anything else in life. In other words, if we give it our best effort, if there's some intensity and depth to it, it gets stronger, and it bears certain fruit. And if we don't, it doesn't. So the concentration is something that gets stronger in the way. Uh, if you want to, if you want to make tea, really good tea, and you have great herbs and wonderful pure water, but you light the, f- you turn on the, the fire, and just before the water is starting to boil, you. You turn it off for some reason, and you have warm water, and you could make tea, but it won't extract the essence of those herbs the same way that when, if the water is brought to a boil and then the herbs are put in, uh, are joined to that boiling water. And so the continuity, and that's why we do this, you know, from early morning till late at night. It's a little bit like that, or rubbing sticks together to create a fire. So granted, now. The effort has been made. We've placed our attention on the breathing. And more and more, we're able to stay with it for a longer period of time. Now, the mindfulness is the sinking into it. The increasing ability to see what's happening there with refinement and subtlety. So at the beginning, if you're asked, well, what's happening? The answer might be fairly general one, like, well, you know, I'm seeing the breath come in and the breath go out. Or I'm feeling the rising and falling. But if perhaps, and this goes on here in various teachings, various retreats, you're asked to provide a more detailed description of that. You're challenged in the way and say, I know it's going in and out, but can you tell me something else? Perhaps you start to see, oh yeah, the out-breath is longer than the in-breath. Or, or if you're at the abdomen, you start to see that there's a hardness to it that I didn't realize was there. It wasn't there in the last sitting. There's a, a solidness or heaviness. We start to detect other qualities, other characteristics. Temperature, hot and cold, and so forth. Moreover, as the practice unfolds, the noticing becomes uh, microscopic, refined, and what might seem like a solid event, let's just take one rising, let's say the abdomen rises, I have to use that word, and it seems like one homogeneous undivided event. But then as the mind gets very, very quiet and stable and has the interest to notice, as we're bringing all these factors together, it begins to see that one rising is made up of perhaps a number of risings and fallings. It isn't just one unit. There's a lot more going on. It's not so solid. It's not so homogeneous. That's interesting. I thought that was just a simple rising and same with the falling. Now, if we can begin to see with greater depth and subtlety the nature of a relatively gross object, like let's say the moving of the abdomen, what happens when we examine personal identity, what we call the self? the whole combination of images and thoughts that we think of as being us. And so from this point of view, the practice is increasingly bringing our life into focus. Certain kinds of subtlety of seeing are possible mainly on retreats like this and longer, where you need a certain set of conditions that protect us, that contribute to the development of this kind of looking. But for most of us, we don't, maybe for all of us, we don't live in those places all the time. The issue doesn't change. Bringing our life into focus and this, this simple combination of factors of effort and concentration and mindfulness applies when we get into the complex situations of our daily life. Like relationship. Let's say there is a relationship. You're in a relationship. And as we all know, difficulties come up. Problems, conflicts. We get stuck. There are disagreements. We have the option of turning towards the present moment. Let's say there's resentment towards the person you're with. We have the option of making an effort to turn our attention towards that what we call resentment, which is a gloss. It's a word that covers a complex set of mind and body states. But for the moment, let's call it resentment. There's a turning towards it. Then there's the same issue. Can we sustain our attention to this resentment that we might have towards our husband or wife or partner or friend? And if we can, can we begin to see the subtleties of what resentment is Can we begin to understand what this feeling means for us right now? And so these three factors from the Eightfold Path really apply throughout our life. They're not limited to the specialized conditions of retreats or uh, solitary sitting. They apply to life. Wherever we're alive, we have the possibility of coordinating those factors bringing them together in a balanced, harmonious way, and seeing how we're living with greater clarity. As the practice unfolds, it not only includes, from a common sense point of view, the clarification of our daily life, the clarification of what we think of as being us, but it gets into issues that cut through the content. Which you might say, we're now coming into uh, what is pure Dharma, independent of, for example, all of us here with our different life stories. Can you imagine staggering if we all let out our life stories with our parents and all the rest of it? The variety of where we grew up and this happened to me and all the rest of that. Yet cutting through all of it, just take one notion, it's all arising and passing away. No matter what the content is for each one of us, It would be arising and passing away. And we have that in common. Everyone in this room is unified because we're all an expression of that process. We are that process. And at a certain point, the mind becomes very interested in something that in a way goes beyond biography. In fact, biography in a certain sense becomes less interesting. How many more times can we explore how our parents didn't do this for us so we turned out this way? You know, after the two millionth time, you know, I was in the crib and it was wet and they didn't change and they were out dancing and I was just, you know, okay, that happened. Enough. So at a certain point, the mind starts to get nourishment from issues that perhaps when we're early on in the practice seem remote or even cold. Like everything is changing, everything is impermanent. But the consequences of that simple statement are profound. We can't go into that in this talk, but you can just, uh, those of you who have come here for the first time, just in a very common sense way, reflect on that. Just what's happening here. If everything is changing and it seems to be ungovernable, which is another aspect of the, the practice which we won't get into right now, and you come to your cushion with fixed ideas about having strong concentration and getting nice meditative states. Of course, you read Joseph's book. (laughs) And suddenly that's not you had it in the last sitting and in this sitting you don't have it. So that law is not something that's reserved for kind of uh, rarefied specialists. It's having very pragmatic concrete implications. It's causing suffering for us because we're living as if the world is fixed, and it isn't, and this law is not one that seems to be going to be changed by any legislature. It seems to be permanent. It just keeps changing and changing and changing. So then the meaning of bringing our life into focus itself changes. Whereas at the beginning, perhaps, making statements like what have been made are graspable in common sense terms, in a certain, at a certain point, unless you've undergone some deep self-inquiry and self-examination, it may not be possible to grasp the significance of some of these ideas and modes of practice. However, no matter where you find yourself, all of us, we're all, we all have the same requirement. I'm doing exactly what I'm asking you to do. or it's each moment, there we are again. Wherever we, find, wherever we are, we find ourselves again. It's like we're following ourselves all day long. And so we start from where we are. And one person is struggling with, this is the first retreat that I've ever been on, and boy, I thought I'd have a lot of this and a lot of that, instead I'm just feeling a lot of bodily pain. And that's what that person has to work with. And I've been, perhaps, I don't know, perhaps doing this longer than most of you, and I might have my things but we all, there's something coming up in each moment, and there's the capacity to know it. And there's the capacity for that knowing to become increasingly refined. And that refinement has extremely pr- uh, practical consequences, most important of which you might call freedom. Hey, we have a bit of time left. If there are any questions, if we can connect your practice with some of what's been said. Is that happening to you in your practice? Mm -hmm. See, I don't want to get too much into things that are... um, it's it's what starts to happen is that this the what you're examining. or other words, if you take a simple notion like arising and passing, as I as I mentioned, let's say with the the abdomen or really anything. Take the body, which is is very easy. It's easier to see it in the body at the beginning. What you start to see are uh, sensations, uh, pulsations, whatever language you want to use things are are flashing into existence and out of existence. And sometimes what you, you can characterize them as flashing into existence, operating for a varying period of time and then disappearing. But as the seeing gets more refined, what we're calling, let's say, it arises and then it operates for a certain period of time and then falls away, that phase that I'm calling operating, it turns out that that itself is not so solid that we can use the term operating because it too is made up of arisings and, and fallings away. In other words, it's, it's a sense of passingness, but on a very microscopic level. You can see the passingness on, a, on all levels. Look at whole civilizations or just something that's more graspable directly. You know, you can just watch light as, it's, you know, as the, the sun starts to set. And we see our moods changing, but the degree of refinement in the noticing is what I'm talking about. Right now, no matter how your mind is, you have the capacity to see arising and passing away. But, until the mind becomes reasonably steady, it's not going to... uh, Okay, maybe this is what you're getting at, and this, to me, is the important aspect of it anyway. We all, if if we if we say that everything is impermanent, probably you'll all agree with that. Probably any reasonable person would agree with that. And all cultures have had philosophies and poetry, and we all know that. In fact, what it, it's not only that everything is permanent impermanent is that we are impermanent. We're going to die, and so that theme is a prominent theme in all philosophies and. Poetry and religions—it's—it's it's obvious, and whether you're a Marxist or a theistic or Buddhist or whatever label, whatever it is, we all see the seasons changing, etc. And so you might nod and say, "Oh, yeah, that's right. Everything is changing." But by and large, that kind of intellectual grasp of change, or even surface grasp that everything is changing, doesn't have very much power to transform a person. So it seems to be because to some degree the mind is still not getting it. It says, yep, everything is changing and it just goes along its merry way as if nothing is changing. And so it's something like this. It's the, the fact of impermanence. And I underline the fact of impermanence has to be absorbed by this close contact of attention and the occurrence of that event. Enough Times. Maybe the mind is a little dopey, you know It has to happen enough times since I get it, everything is changing. And if I hold on to anything, of course I'm going to suffer, because it won't be there the way I want it to be there, because it's changing. And so it's a much more palpable, tangible, uh, intimate experience of a lawfulness that can be grasped at many levels. And grasping at the microscopic level can be very powerful when it starts to show you that patterns that we imbue with a certain uh, foreverness you know, or solidity, if we can really see that they aren't, but really see it not just mentally, but dig it out of our own mind and body, then that, pa- that pattern doesn't have the same power over us ever again. And even though, let's say, you're on a retreat where you're able to do a lot of that kind of noticing, and then, let's say you leave the retreat, and you can't quite have that same refinement, particularly if you're involved in a busy life. The fact that you dipped into or tasted that level of seeing change changes you. I found that it makes it you become lighter, you more uh, develop a lighter relationship with form more uh, more of an ability to participate in forms, but somewhere there's the knowledge that the form is going to go away and perhaps it becomes a bit easier to enjoy the forms but not to expect them to last forever because they don't. To enjoy a sunset and that's it when it's over, period. There isn't suffering then. To enjoy a meal, fine, it's over. And so there is some carryover in terms of consequences in terms of our life. Not all practices aim at microscopic noticing. That's one very powerful tool to uh, very deeply convince the mind of the truth of impermanence. There are other approaches which which then helps the letting go, the non-attachment to I or mine. This may be a bit too specialized for some of you who have just come here today. There are other ways to enhance or to develop that non-attachment and to help the letting go process. This is one excellent way to do it, is by seeing the arising and passing away with increasing refinement. Now, I'd like to talk to your practice. Could you help me? what what, What was your question? What was in back of your question? Yes. I just assume, you know, we can talk about it. Yes. No question about it. Perhaps one quick question. Sure. I don't know if this is a quick question, but um, is the point of the practice uh, to make the moment always present or to let go of it so the moment is never present? Or is that the same thing? Well... Um, a lot of people nowadays—it's become very fashionable where I live in Cambridge. Everyone's letting go of everything, except I think what they're really saying is they're throwing away and pushing away. I think a lot of times what we're talking about when we say letting go—it's really letting be. Whereas if we allow something to come up and we meet it with full attention in that moment, uh, it runs its course. Runs its natural course and is probably less likely to come back or to whatever happens, it runs its course. No, we're, what we're attempting to do is to, is to be with what's happening as it's happening. And many consequences flow from that. One of which, you see, you can't, if you're fully attentive, totally, and especially as attention becomes stronger, you can't be both attached and attentive at the same time. The attachment cuts identification. Does that mean anything to you, or is uh, the awareness itself is a very powerful energy, especially as it starts to develop? If you're very identified, you're not going to be very aware of what's happening in the moment because you're caught up in the identification. There are some approaches that talk about disidentification. I feel that what we're doing, uh, we're not trying to disidentify. It's just that by seeing the identification, it loses its potency. And you're just present with it. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Uh Doesn't sound it. (laughs) You have to convince me. No, if there's something unresolved, please continue. Um, I I was just uh, thinking of this book that I recently read that uh, said that it's in Buddhist uh, philosophy not just there's four logical precepts something that is, something that isn't something that is and isn't and something that Yeah. Uh, <laughs> last one. but anyways you're saying that it it is and isn't at the same time the moment, is that what you're saying? or is it? at the risk of sounding snide I would suggest you go back to your breath okay. <laughs> um, I'm not saying that logical scheme doesn't have its value but what I'm saying is really quite simple In words, for example right now just, just pinch yourself you No, know, please do it really pinch yourself can you feel that? Mm-hmm. now make it harder can you feel that it's harder? Mm-hmm. that's it you just did it Only we're doing it for more than just that kind of a simple experience. We're doing it with everything. Just, we're, and that's why one, what you can talk about what's happening is we're becoming more intimate with life. With our own mind, our own body, and then as the mind becomes clearer with nature, with everything around us, we're more in direct contact with what's happening. Now. There's only now. Does that help? There is only now. There's no other place to be. Whoop, we've already left. Whereas we have we may even having a memory is happening now, and having a future projection is having is happening now. And all that's being suggested is very simple, turning towards what is happening now with concentration and sensitivity. Okay, why don't we do some walking? Uh, One thought I had is there are a number of you who are really new and you're going through things that are different, in my opinion, based on the number of you that have come up here, a growing number. Uh, What I thought might be helpful is a a small meeting of those of you who are here for just the first time in the library right now because I think the kinds of questions that you you have uh, are unique for you. So if you would like to come... Uh, I'll go to the library during this walking period, and it's only for those people who just arrived, you know, who have never been here before. You don't have to come, it's not required, although I would suggest it. Thank you for listening.